uh, it's amazing to us that we have access to the God of all creation. Um, we know that we have access to you only by grace, through faith. It's, it's your gift to us. We don't deserve it. We've rebelled against you, and we know that. And yet you've sent your Son so that he would die for us, that we might trust him and be forgiven, that he would live for us, that we might trust him and his righteousness be given to us, that we may stand justified in your presence, that we may have peace with you, and we know that you hear us. And not only that, but even more importantly, we know that we now hear you. You've given us ears to hear, and so we pray that you would indeed speak by your word, that we would indeed hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Jeremiah in chapter 7, please. Jeremiah chapter 7. I want to read the first 15 verses. Remember, we started this prophetic book a few weeks ago. It's a little different than many of the other books in the Bible in that it does speak uh, more than we're maybe accustomed to thinking about in terms of judgment and all of that, but it's the Word of God. We need to pick it up. We need to see every angle we possibly can of God's revelation to us so that we would know Him because knowing God is designed to thrill our souls. So Jeremiah in chapter 7, please, I want to read, beginning with verse 1 here, please, the Word of God. The Word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, Swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you and you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and into the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. 
I always feel a bit torched after I read that. This is uh, one of the more famous pieces, really, of Jeremiah's prophecy. It's called the Temple Sermon. It's recorded here and in chapter 26, and you feel bits and pieces of it as you, as you read through this prophetic word. Can you imagine the scene? God says to Jeremiah, still relatively young, it's uh, probably hmm, some years since his calling. He's probably in his 30s by now. And God says to Jeremiah, go and stand at the gate of the temple. It's probably a time of feasting. It might be Passover. It might be the Feast of Tabernacles. It might be Pentecost. And the reason I say that is because the men of Jeru- Judah are all coming into the temple. And those feasts, Passover, ta- uh, Tabernacles, and Pentecost were sort of command feasts that the men had to go uh, to Jerusalem, to the temple. So you get this sense that it's bigger than just a regular day. It's bigger than just people coming in and out of the temple area. This is a time when the men are coming. And so it's strategic. And God says, this is the time when they'll all be in my hearing. So Jeremiah, I want you to stand at this gate and I want you to pronounce this warning. And the morning is, warning is amend your ways and your deeds and I'll let you live here and I'll live among you in Jerusalem. God's presence in Jerusalem, His presence there with the temple. He says, if you amend your ways, then I'll let you live here. If you don't, I will not. And then as we get to the end, you get the sense that He's not because they're not going to amend their ways. But Jeremiah is to make this warning to them, give them this word. Contextually, historically, just very quickly, and as we go through Jeremiah, I'll be reviewing these historical facts because I know they're kind of hard to keep in our heads, but they're important to keep in our heads. Uh, We should know uh, this history, even as I say that, I know that I forget it as well and have to to review it myself. But you remember that Israel was divided into two, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, That division happened after King Solomon. You might remember too that the northern kingdom uh, declined spiritually and were uh, those who who worshipped other gods and committed great abominations. And so God uh, brought the Assyrians to them and destroyed them, in a sense, deported them. And so we refer to these ten lost tribes of Israel, the northern tribes. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that happened in 722 B.C. Now remember, we do B.C., we go from big numbers to small numbers because we're going to zero and then back up again. And so in the, then after... That, 722 B.C., if you look then at Judah, which then is the remaining people of God, if you will, in the land, and they're in Jerusalem. They have Jerusalem, and uh, so the temple is there. There was a horrible king by the name of Manasseh, and he ruled for 55 years. And every abomination, every sin that you could ever imagine... um, In fact, if we took even unbelievers today and they looked at the reign of Manasseh, they would say, he was a horrible man. I mean, he brought in all kinds of immorality into Judah and even into the temple. Prostitution, all idols of other gods in the temple area. You'd walk into the temple and you'd see statues of of goddesses and gods of of all kinds of immorality. Nude statues, very grotesque, very explicit. In the temple area where people would come to worship God. 
He set up places in the hills where people would go and make sacrifices to other gods, completely disregarding the God who had come to them, the God who had loved them, the God who had cared for them, the God who had made them his people. And not only that, he was one who offered his own son as an infant baby to be burned as a sacrifice to the god Molech. That takes very few words to say, but can you imagine that? A dad, a king, laying his son on an altar of fire. That's the man he was. He reigned for 55 years, and God said at the end of his reign, I will judge Judah. Next king, Ammon, didn't last very long, had some enemies. They killed him, brought in his son, Jehoiachin, who uh, was uh, one who was taken by, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Ammon. Then Josiah, after Ammon, didn't want to forget Josiah. Good king Josiah, great king Josiah. Josiah was one uh, who brought back to Judah the worship of God. Uh, He was king at eight years old. But then in his early 20s, he began this reformation. Uh, Jeremiah was prophesying by that time. Together, no doubt, they worked to bring this reformation. But then in the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, so if he started when he was 8 and this was the 18th year, he was 26. So when he was 26 years old, the the law was found in the temple and was read. And and people began to repent and people celebrated the feasts and and, and people turned back to God. And it it was a great time. In Judah. But then he was killed. He was killed in a battle. He was killed in a battle against the Egyptians. And, and when that happened, things started to fall apart again. His first son, Jehoiachin, was then made king. But he was taken by the king of Egypt after just a few months and sent to Egypt. And, and the king of Egypt appointed another son, Jehoiakim, to be the next king. And he was horrible. He was like Manasseh began to bring in all these evil practices again. And so it's at that point in time, 608 B.C., when Jehoiakim was the king of Judah, a puppet king, really. The, the real king was the Egyptian king, but he was a puppet king. But, 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 but it's at this time, when all the abominations were back, that Jeremiah comes before the gate, called by God to go before the gate and say, warn them. Tell them to amend their ways, only if they amend their ways, only if they repent, only if they're transformed, only if there's a change, then will I let them live in this place, to live in Jerusalem. And you have to ask the question, I suppose, well, what's the big deal? They're coming to the temple. I mean, what's, what could be wrong with that? I mean, surely God's not going to discourage them from coming into the temple. I mean, isn't that the place they're supposed to be? And of course, the answer is yes, that is the place they're supposed to be but not as they were coming. You might remember that when the temple was dedicated by King Solomon, the temple was dedicated by King Solomon. He, he stood before the temple. You can find this in 1 Kings chapter 8. He stood before the temple and he said, God, when we need forgiveness of sin, we will stand before this temple and we will make our confession." And you will forgive us our sin. God, when all kinds of calamity comes before us, and and we're in great need 
whether it's sickness, whether it's pestilence, whether it's plague, whether it's the enemy, whatever it would happen to be, whether it's famine, whether it's drought, whatever is coming against us, we will stand in your presence and humble ourselves and we will ask you to help us and to meet our needs and you will bless us as your people. This is even when the sojourner, even when the stranger, even when the person who isn't part of, 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 of Israel comes and, and they stand before this temple and they humble themselves before you and they trust you and they, and they plead with you to help them. You, you will hear their prayers. In fact, the, the summary statement of, of, of uh, Solomon as he, as he comes to, to pray uh, for this temple and to, to dedicate this temple is that this would be the very dwelling place of God with his people and they will live according to God's ways. And, and so here's the purpose of the temple. The purpose of the temple is for the people to come to humble themselves. In fact, even as the Lord speaks to Jeremiah, he says when they, when they come to worship at the temple, when they come here to worship, and, and the word for worship in Hebrews. Uh, it's it's um, one of those action words. It's one of those words that you read and you go, oh, they're, they're, I'm, I'm seeing a picture here. And it's certainly a literal picture, but it has a, a meaning to us that, that goes beyond the, the literal picture. The word for worship in Hebrew means to bow down. In fact, it means to lay on your face. <laughs> and so the picture of worship, whether we do it or not, isn't that important. Although in my own private life, I must confess, laying on my face is a good place for me to be uh, before God. I'm always afraid, Karen, one of the children might come down and see me and call 911. No, I'm just praying. Um, but, uh, but it's a good place to be. There's this feeling. And what it means is that when we come into the presence of God, it isn't arrogant. It isn't proud. It's humble. There's a recognition that God is great and we are not. There's a recognition in worship that God is king and we've come to submit to him in everything. That's the sense of worship. As soon as they come, they're, they're to come in worship. And in worship, they're to say, I, I need forgiveness. They're to say, I need help. They're to say, please help me live as you would want me to live. They're saying, please teach me so that I will know your way, so that I can walk in your ways. That, that's the sense. That's what worship is all about. And so you see, worship, coming to worship, in their day and ours, is very dangerous. If it isn't really worship. And so their problem is they had this sense that the temple was kind of like a rabbit's foot. It was kind of like a, a place of safety, meaning that they could simply run into it and they'd be safe. Everything is fine. As long as the temple's there, I can do whatever I want. As long as the temple's there, I can do whatever I want. In fact, Jeremiah refers to it, as you might remember Jesus did in his own day, as a den of thieves. Now, do you know what a den of thieves was? It was the place, the den, it was the place of hiding for thieves. So that if you stole a bunch of stuff, you could run into that place and be safe. You were still a thief. <laughs> you still had all that you had stolen. You weren't going to give it up. But it was a place that you could hang out with your other thieves and be safe. And the temple isn't that kind of place place. Oh, it's a den of thieves in a sense, but repentant ones. Not ones who come and say, what did you get? What did you get? 
How much do you have? Wow, give me your plan. How can I go back out there and do what we've just... No, it isn't that at all. It's to come in the presence of God humbly and to bow before him and say, I see who you are. I see who I am. Forgive me. I see who you are. I see who I am. Lead me. I see who you are. I see who I am. Please, direct my paths. Lead me now, God, into paths of righteousness. Give me strength to walk in that. That's real worship. And they weren't doing that. Notice how he puts it, verse 5. He says, for if you truly amend your ways, your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to, gods to your own harm, then God's saying, I need you to amend your ways. Meaning, their ways were ways of injustice. He says, how can you live unjustly, do injustice, not do justice and come into my presence without blushing. Remember, that was one of the difficulties in, in, in this time period, and I would say perhaps even in ours. In Jeremiah chapter 6, we read this last week, verse 13, uh, Jeremiah prophesies, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's like getting with the den of thieves and saying, isn't stealing fun? That's fine. As long as it makes you feel good. As long as you feel satisfied. As long as everything seems okay, then it must be. And that's what the priests were telling them, the prophets as well. Save Jeremiah. Verse 15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. They could live in all of these sinful ways and walk into the presence of God as if everything was fine. Nobody felt the least twinge. So steeped in their sin, nobody felt the least twinge of guilt in the presence of God for not honoring Him, for living unjustly. As we mentioned during our time of confession, sin is... The reformers kind of summarized it for us very nicely. Sin is any want of conformity to. It's a little complicated expression. It just means that you don't conform to. You don't want to conform to and you don't conform to in your actions that which God says is right to do. That's injustice. See, justice means I can evaluate property that which is good, properly that which is good and that which is evil and I'll choose that which is good. That's just. But see, deep within us is this sense of injustice. It, it starts when we're young. We see it, selfishness. Everything revolves around ourselves. And we seem to only get better at that the older, the older we get. And he says this injustice causes us to be the kind of people that take advantage of even the weakest among us. We see this even in our children because they gather together. They tease, they pick on, they ignore the weakest ones. The ones that are the least attractive. The ones that come from the, 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 the most impoverished backgrounds. The ones that are least athletic. You, you talk about the ones that are least, and they're the ones that are teased. Those are the ones that are ignored. Those are the ones that are picked on, even as children. And then as we get older, we do it in more socially acceptable ways. Sometimes, sometimes not. And we see that in our own 
culture, our own context of our own, our own lives. Seen in the sense of our own country, where we've lived through deep periods of racial injustice, even as slave owners hid themselves in the church and said, oh, this is good. We see it in the sense of sexual immorality, even in the context of church where sexual immorality is robed in the garbs of bishops. We see it where same-gender marriages are being blessed in church without blushing, as if this is fine. That doesn't at all mean that when you come to church, when they came to temple, they had to be perfect. That wasn't it at all. They had to be honest and repentant. I mean, it isn't. It's one thing to be honest and say, yes, I'm a great sinner. But if you say, yes, I'm a great sinner, and you simply laugh it off, that isn't it either. It isn't just honesty. Hypocrisy is not the deepest sin. It isn't that we're just simply not hypocrites. We admit our sin. It isn't simply admitting it. It's admitting and amending. It's admitting and saying, this is really wrong. I get it. I understand. I don't want to be like this. It's realizing that, yes, God is judge. Yes, there is justice. Yes, I need to amend my ways. God, help me. That's this sense of repentance. And it's this sense of repentance, too, that when we hear of our sin, rather than to be defensive, rather than saying, no, 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 I'm not really like that, Or rather than even capitulate and say, oh yes, that must be me, okay. No, and it's embracing it. Yes, that's true of me. I'm sorry. I wish I weren't like that. What does it take? Well, it takes forgiveness. Thus, trust in Jesus. I realize I can't. He did. Thank you. I embrace him. I trust him. And then to say, fill me with your spirit in such a way that I can live so that it's pleasing. God, my life is pleasing to you. To simply come and confess sin and say, I'm forgiven now, I can go out and do it again, misses the point. It's sort of like saying, well, the church is here, that's great. I go to grace, it's a great church, I must be okay, I must be safe. My parents believe I must be safe, I've been baptized, I must be safe. I took communion, I must be safe, I gave money, I must be safe. But that sort of just buys me another week, I can go out and do whatever it is that I want to do. And no, 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 you missed the point. It embraces our whole lives. They say, well, the temple's there. God made a promise he'll live in the temple. Therefore, he must always be there. We're safe. No matter what happens, no matter what comes our way, we must really be safe. And he says, watch how you live. You're the kind of people that take advantage even of the weakest among you. Even those who are the sojourners in your land, the foreigners, you take advantage of them. Need I say, the history of our country in taking advantage of those who are new to us. Because they lack family, they lack skills, they lack culture, they lack our language. And so what do we do rather than help them? We say, well, how can they help us? How can we take advantage of them? And the widows who have no husband to help and to support and to secure, we take advantage of them. And the orphans, they have no parents to watch out for them. So what do we do? Well, we ignore them on the one hand or we take advantage of them on the other. And he said, no, no, they're the weakest ones among you. Know the heart of God. Weren't you the weakest? Spiritually speaking, weren't you dead in your trespasses and sins and then God came to you? Isn't there a parallel here? Weakness, help, weakness, mercy, weakness, help. Isn't that how we're to be? 
in Israel? Weren't you slaves? Weren't you foreigners in a land? And, and the, the people took complete advantage of you, even to enslave you? How can you not treat the foreigners in your land kindly after what took place in your own life? Didn't you get it? Don't you learn anything? Is there no empathy in your own heart to those who were once like you? How can we be uppity one against another when the best we can do in our own efforts is to merit hell? Right? How can I be uppity and say I'm better than you when I admit to you that I'm a sinner before God and the best I can do without Christ is for him to condemn me to hell. That's just true. So he says, how can we ever be those who take advantage of another? But he says to Judah, that's what you do. Of course, it gets worse and worse. Verse 30 of Jeremiah chapter 7. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They've said their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. So idols there. And they have built the high places of uh, Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of um, Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in fire, which I did not command nor did it come into my mind. God said, I would have never thought of that. For you to do that, for you to kill your children on my behalf, to sacrifice your kids to me. And yet, we live in a culture. And that's why this time with the Advocacy Pregnancy Center is of such great value to us and birthright and others like that because we live in a culture where babies are sacrificed all the time. 42 million since 1973. It's just amazing. It's not a political issue, it's a moral issue. This isn't a Republican-Democrat thing, this is a moral issue. This is, this is the heart of God issues. This is, this is it. those little ones created in the very image of God and we're sacrificing them. And I know, I know this is a subject that for those who've sinned in this area it's very grievous and I don't wish to heap more guilt upon you at all but it's grievous to all of us to live in a culture like Isaiah said I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips that's just all around us it's grievous to me I remember in mid 70s signing a petition uh, that was authorizing choice in this area. I look back on that moment and grieve. My only consolation is that I don't have any confidence that politicians ever pay any attention to those. But it grieves me to think I did that. I thought that. That was in my mind. But it was. It really was. I've repented of that, obviously. But it still grieves me to think and so this was the people, this was Judah, this was the people of God. One day, they would sacrifice their children. The next day, they would come to the temple as if all was well. One day, they would lie and cheat and steal and come to the temple the next day as if all was well. And God says, how can you do that? This isn't a den of robbers. You remember in the days of Jesus, they were selling all kinds of things and stealing from people and exchanging money in ways that was, that was, that was wrong and immoral and, and, and so forth. And Jesus came in and with, the, with the cords and so forth and sent them all out and said, this is to be a place of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. You're doing here what you do there. 
And you do it with the same gusto and with the same lack of repentance as you do out there. How can you do that in the presence of God? Now, he wasn't saying it's okay to do out there, but not okay to do in here. He was saying it's not okay to do in the presence of God. And so he says the same to them. And he says the same to us. This is the real thing. God's real. And so he says to them, if you don't believe me, take a road trip. If you don't believe me, go down to Shiloh. Now, Shiloh was an interesting place. You can find this in 1 Kings chapters 4 through 6. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 6. It was a day that Eli, not the book of Eli, but Eli was a priest. And Eli had two sons, Phinehas and Hophni. And they were evil priests. Sexually immoral, stole from people, um, offered sacrifices that they shouldn't have offered in ways they shouldn't have offered, lied to people, said, I made that sacrifice when they didn't, and all that kind of thing. And it was in the day that the people had this, this same kind of notion. Well, we have the tabernacle, this movable tent of place of God's presence. And we have this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, which was the very presence of God with them. And they said, as long as we have the Ark, we're cool. As long as we have the Ark, we can go into battle and, and we'll destroy everyone. Well, the Philistines, who were their nemesis, the Philistines were going to come against the people of, of, of Israel. And uh, uh, the people said, no problem, we've got the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistines heard about that, and they were afraid. They weren't flipping about it. They were afraid of that. They said, oh, no, their God lives in a box, and their God's going to go with them. And, and, and surely we'll, we've got to really fight hard, because now we're not fighting just them. We're fighting their God. Well, amazingly, during that battle, the Israelites were defeated, slaughtered, the scripture says. Hineas, uh, Hineas, Phineas and Hophni uh, were both killed. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured and stolen by the Philistines. Where it came back to Eli, fell off a stool and died. So you see the great tragedy that took place in that place because of their sin. Amazingly, however, they, the, the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and they did what, uh, what they did in those days to deface the God of their enemy. And they put the Ark of the Covenant in the area, the shrine area, where their, temp- their God, the idol of their God, Dagon, was. And so here's a picture, this is Dagon and the, whatever he looked like. And here's the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord. And so they went to bed. Next morning they came and they found that Dagon was laying flat on the ground. The idol was laying flat on the ground. And they said, well, let's put him back up. So they did. So they went to bed. Next day they came and they found him not only flat on the ground, but his head and his hands of the idol had been cut off. On the one hand you say, oh, well, guess who's God? But amazingly, that pagan God had the posture that the people of Judah should have had in the temple. That pagan God had the same posture that you and I should have as we come to worship. Our heads cut off saying, only your thoughts. Our hands cut off, only your strength. That we submit our head, we submit our hands to you. 
And we come not flippantly. We come not arrogantly. We come not as just sort of superstition. We're just here because we, we know if we can be here, then we get some sense of security, some sense of, of, of anchor, some sense of balance. We're here. Okay, it must be okay with our lives. Whatever it is that we did is fine. And, and we gather around. We just convince about our lives. And we never really sink deep into God. We never sink really deep into life. We never really come to grips with who we are and who God is and how we ought to be. That's why as we come to worship, as sort of formal as it may feel sometimes, then we confess our sins. We stop. We say, okay, this isn't going to be phony. We, we don't want this to be something that's just sort of, we all just come in and sing and, and have a nice time and smile and, and uh, look very clean and perfect and all of that and go home. No, 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 we want to acknowledge something here. That's really true. We want to bow down before God. Say, we know who you are and we trust you. Forgive us our sins. This is who we are. No pretense. All of us. True for everybody as we sit in this room together to confess, there's a sense in which I know you've sinned, you know I've sinned. We're acknowledging that together before God. And then we bow, we give Him thanks, and we hear His assurance, and, and we listen. Okay, now, transform me, change me. I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. I'm not here, we say, to, to trust in this building. I'm not here to trust... In this church, I'm not here to trust in the pastor. I'm not here to trust in my parents' faith. I'm not here to, to trust in the fact that I grew up in this church, therefore I must be fine. I'm not here to say I took communion or I got baptized or I gave. That's not my trust. Oh, those are all good things. Those are all fine things. Those are all helpful things. But no, no, that's not where I put my trust. I put my trust in the real temple of the Lord. You remember. When Jesus was walking around, he looked at the temple and he said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they said, that guy's crazy. It's taken us hundreds of years to redo this temple, to rebuild it. And it still isn't finished yet. We're still working on it. And he says, if it's destroyed, he'll have it up and running in three days. And the apostle put parenthetically, this, he was speaking of his body. So destroy this temple. I'm the temple of God. I'm the presence of God. In me you find forgiveness. In me you find help. In me you find your justification. In me you find your sanctification. In me you find your glorification. In me you find everything for which the heart of a real human being really longs. In me. So come here. Now you can't come saying, oh, I don't need you. You can't come just to me as if everything's fine. You come to me. To worship. You come to me bowed down. You come to me humbled. You come to me hands off, head off. You come to me submitting yourself to me because I'm the king. And you come to me and I, I forgive you. Because I can. I forgive you because I've died for you. You come and say, help me. I can because I'm righteous. I transform you. You come to me. We learn, I think, that worship is dangerous <laughs> because it's serious. Because it's in the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. 
that our lives would be lives of worship, that we would know that we're always in your presence. Christ is always here. And we take comfort in him and in him, Father, alone. So I pray for me, I pray for all of us, that we would be honest before you, that we'd really get who you are, that we'd really come to know you as creator, as the one who makes law, as the one who reveals to us that which is good and evil, as the one who judges, and to know that you will, that justice delayed isn't justice denied in the context of our lives, that we can't simply go off and live however it is that we wish and pretend that all is well if we're in sin against you. So I pray that we would come to you in humility to submit to you our very lives and as we do to confess our sins, to receive forgiveness that comes in Jesus. For your justice has been meted out in him. He has paid the penalty for the sins of sinners. So, Father, as we trust in him, his death is transferred to us. His bearing your wrath is transferred in such a way that we've now borne it, that it's gone, it's satisfied. And we can live. Enable us to do that as we gather, Father, I pray. As we live, Father, I pray. That we would be real people, authentic, honest, knowing who you are. To reveal to us our sin. We wouldn't be so steeped in it, we'd miss it. And you'd cause us then to walk with you. Fill us with the knowledge of your will. With all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that we may live worthy of Christ fully pleasing to him. Father, this is a place of prayer. We find a place of prayer in Jesus, our high priest. And so we come to you through him and intercede on behalf of those who are hurting, we pray. For those who are disadvantaged, for those who are having difficulties, be it financial, the context of relationships, marriage, family, friendships. Those who live in loneliness and fear. Those who are sick, Father, who face diseases, some debilitating, some terminal. And so we pray for them, Father, that you would bring help and healing, fellowship, supply, assurance, deep faith in you, unshakable faith in you. For those, Father, who've felt this great difficulty in Haiti, who've lived it through, we pray for those who are suffering there. Please help them. Pray for those who are sent to go there. I pray that you would help them as well. Chad Donahoe, as he goes this week with food for the hungry, I pray for him as he goes to Haiti and sees what's there and supplies some help and brings report to us. I pray for him. Thank you for all those who are helping there. Bless them in the richest, deepest sense of that word, God. Father, we're here. We, we want this to be a significant day in our lives and in our life with you. So I pray that you would move deeply in us, melt away any resistance that we have towards following you. Call us to yourself, that we may love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that you may show yourself to be the one who satisfies the very souls of your people. 
that we may praise you, worship you, walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Please stand for the benediction. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing. As I enter in and receive your grace, Lord, I long to see your holy face and your steadfast love covers me today as you carry me away. All my flesh desires the lies of this world Seeking selfish gain with unholy words. Help me sing your praise with my tongue again until you carry me away. Carry me away. Carry me away. Carry me away. Jesus, carry me away. In my sinfulness, I return again to the righteousness of the Son of Man. And He has washed away the stain of sin, and He will carry me away, carry me away, carry me away. Carry me away, Jesus, carry me away. And heaven's closer than it's ever been. And its glory I, I can't comprehend. And when Jesus comes and returns again, He will carry me away, carry me away, carry me away, carry me away, Jesus, carry me away, carry me away, carry me away, carry me away, Jesus, carry me carry me away. You may go in peace.